0: Let me welcome all those of you who are gathered with us this day to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome, greetings. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, verses 67 through 79, verses 67 through 79. This is, of course, the time of year where we focus in a unique way on the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ, and this is one of the great passages of Scripture on the coming of the Son of God to bring us salvation and redemption. So let's hear God's Word together. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Amen. May God bless the reading of His Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we dwelt once in the darkness, Uh, we were in bondage to sin and under your judgment facing condemnation and death, but in grace you came and sought us through our Lord Jesus Christ and we are gathered today to celebrate that great fact. So Father, we pray that the good news of your coming to us to bring salvation, to bring redemption to us, uh, would cause our hearts to overflow with joy and thanksgiving. Make us responsive, we pray, to the truth. Grant those of us who have come to know the forgiveness of sin through Jesus to rejoice mightily and give thanks today. Grant us to be glad in Jesus. And if there are any in this place who have not tasted the goodness of God revealed in Christ, may they do so today. May they find the joy and the peace and the life that is in your Son, Jesus, our Savior. Amen. There is a, <clears throat> there's a striking scene at the very beginning of uh, John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, one of the great and classic works of Christian literature. Uh, Christian, that's the name of the central character, appropriately, uh, is, is being tempted and seduced by the people of his town to come back, to come back home. What are you doing? What are you, this uh, fanatical preoccupation with God and salvation, come back. And a Christian plugs his ears with his fingers and keeps running in the opposite direction and says, life, life, eternal life. And what is underscored in that moment very dramatically is that whatever else we need to seek in life, we need to seek eternal life. We need to seek salvation and redemption in Jesus Christ. Whatever else you need, Scripture says, you need this one thing. You need salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Puritan Jeremiah Burroughs Puts it this way, before the soul sought after this and that, but now it says, I see that it is not necessary for me to be rich, but it is necessary for me to make peace with God. It is not necessary that I should live a pleasurable life in this world, but it is absolutely necessary that I should have pardon of my sin. It is not necessary that I should have honor, but it is necessary that I should have God as my portion, that my soul should be, sa- should be saved in the day of Jesus Christ. The other things are pretty fine indeed, and I should be glad if God would give them to me, a fine house and income and clothes and advancement for my wife and children. These are good things, but they are not necessary things. What's the necessary thing? Just what we've said, forgiveness of sins and reconciliation to God. This is more fundamental and necessary than a happy marriage, happy home life, uh, wealth, satisfying career. This is the one thing that we can't live without. And according to the passage we've read, this is what God gives us in the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Last week, we looked at the incarnation as an act of revelation. When the Son of God becomes one of us, we see what God is like. We see that He is a selfless God who gives of Himself that others might be redeemed. Today, we notice that the incarnation of our Lord Jesus Christ is an act of salvation. A rescuing from sin and reconciliation to God. So, as we look at our passage this morning, we will note five things unexpectedly. Five today. Uh, Number one, God saves. Two, God saves through his king. Three, he saves according to his promise. Four, he saves from sin and death. Five, he saves that we might obey. Chapter 1 of Luke's Gospel is filled with anticipation and joy. Uh, An angel of the Lord, the angel Gabriel, comes to an old priest in the temple, and he gives him good news. You and your barren wife, also aged, will have a son, John the Baptist, the forerunner to Jesus Christ. The priest is anticlimactically slow to believe and uh, is chastened and disciplined for his unbelief. He's not able to speak until the child is born. But God says to Zechariah, the man who is prophesying in this passage, that his son and the son of Elizabeth will be great before the Lord. There's a prophet of the Lord coming to announce the coming of the Lord. And that same angel appears to the Virgin Mary and says, you will be the mother of the Messiah. How can this be? I'm a virgin. The power of God will overshadow you. And you will give birth to Israel's Savior and indeed the Savior of the world. So there's this sense that something big is happening, that that a new chapter, a climactic chapter in human history and salvation history is just around the corner. And and so there's this expectation and there are people filled with the Holy Spirit in chapter 1, bursting forth in praise and adoration. And the crescendo of that expectation and praise is in this passage. See, Zechariah praising the Lord after the birth of John the Baptist Inspired by the Holy Spirit, filled with the Holy Spirit, he praises God and helps us to understand the significance of the birth of John the Baptist. He says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. God has come on the scene to rescue, to save. Just as the Lord visited Israel when Israel languished in captivity in Egypt slaves of the Egyptians, and the Lord visited them. He showed up to rescue. In a similar way, in Zechariah's day, the Lord has come on the scene. And he has raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant, David. He has given Israel a Messiah. The king that she has been waiting for and that the world has been waiting for has come on the scene, and God, in sending the Messiah, has fulfilled his ancient promises, verse 70 as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old." So this is a moment of fulfillment. Israel has been waiting and waiting for centuries for the Messiah to come, God's king who would would bring her and the world blessing and victory. And Zechariah is saying in this prophecy, the time of fulfillment has come, the king is here. This is a moment, uh, to use a a word coined by J.R. Tolkien, of u-catastrophe, u-catastrophe, a catastrophe as we know is when things go suddenly and unexpectedly wrong. So in Job's life, when he loses his children and his wealth and his health in one day, that's a catastrophe. A u-catastrophe is just the opposite of that. So when things go suddenly and unexpectedly right, you wake up and death and taxes are banished from the earth. That would be a u-catastrophe. <laughs> Right? A mini U catastrophe is when you wake up, and for a moment, a dark moment, you think it's Monday, and you realize it's Saturday. <laughs> Things are unexpectedly and suddenly good, and this is a moment just like that. Uh, to use the imagery that Zechariah Zach- that will use later in his song, Israel has pined in error and darkness, but suddenly there's a shaft of light from heaven. God himself has come down to bring redemption to his people. Things have gone suddenly and unexpectedly right for Israel and for the world. Now notice the obvious thing about the opening of this song. It is adoration to God for his salvation. It is about what God does for man, not what man does for God. This is essential to understand. What Zechariah is rejoicing in is the fact that God himself has come down to save, because only God can save, we cannot save. The picture here is not that God has come down to tell us how we can save ourselves. He has given us a, a list of things that we need to do, and if we dutifully do those things, then we will experience his salvation. That's not the picture. The picture is that God comes and saves us and does for us what we can't do for ourselves. God comes down to us so that we can be lifted up to him. If God had come down to tell us what to do to be saved, then our response would be a response of working harder, trying harder, rolling up our sleeves and trying to engage in some sort of program of moral improvement. That would be the response if God came down to tell us how to be saved through our striving. That's not what happens God shows up to save us, and so in the first instance, we are not supposed to do anything. We are supposed to behold the salvation that has come from outside of us, to receive it, to believe it, and to rejoice in it. In other words, the, the right response to the salvation of God is, is the, ironically, the opposite of uh, the, the way the last few weeks have been for us. Right? As we get closer to the holidays, what do we do? We're, we're busy. Life is hectic and frantic. Uh, We do and we go. But in receiving God's salvation, the first thing we need to do is stop doing and consider and look at what he has done for us and rest in that. Christianity does not in the first instance confront us with what we need to do, what we need to do to be saved. Christianity in the first instance comes to us with good news about what God himself has done for us in history. And it is an invitation to believe that message and rejoice in it, and obey as a response, as we'll see, but fundamentally to rest in the work of God. So what is clear, even from the opening of Zechariah's song, is that it is God who saves, not man. And we are invited to trust. And we note also that God saves the undeserving. God saves the undeserving. This uh, prophecy of Zechariah basically has two parts. The first part underscores God's salvation. And then in verse 76, the, the prophecy shifts towards John the Baptist. And his ministry is described in terms of the way it fits in with God's saving program. And John the Baptist will go before Jesus, before the Messiah, verse 77, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. So John will preach salvation to the people of God in the forgiveness of their sins. Now, sin refers to disobedience of God's will and his commands. Uh, The essence of sin is rejecting God's authority over you, saying to him, I am not going to submit to you. I am going to live according to my understanding of right and wrong i'm going to be my own king i'm going to be my own boss that's what a sin is and what what it means to sin is to of course violate the command of god but the result is that we are counted guilty in the eyes of our creator so john comes declaring that there is salvation from this guilt salvation from this condemnation but consider what that means for a moment if the goal of salvation is to free us from sin, then that means that we are sinful when God determines to save us. So if, if, if what salvation aims at is forgiveness and the removal of sin, then at the moment when God decides to save us, what must be true about us? We're sinners. Right? If, I, uh, if you're sick and I give you a bit of medication to make you well, at the moment I give you the medication, you are still ill. At the moment that God comes to save us, He comes not because we've got our act together or Israel has her act together. Uh, God comes because He's that kind of God. So what we see from this passage is God... It's not that Israel has suddenly become a better nation, so God shows up to save her. The the world has become a better place, so He shows up to save the world and to uh, to save us. No, it's that we are dead in our sins and trespasses, helpless... Unable to do anything for ourselves, but because God is gracious, He comes to us offering salvation freely. So what we need to see here is that salvation is a gift. It is not something that we earn or strive for. It is something that God freely gives us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And again, the appropriate response is simply to trust in that salvation, to rest in the Savior that God has given to us. And we should note that if grace begins the Christian life, it continues to define the Christian life. It's not just that uh, God's grace brings us into a relationship with himself at the beginning and then the rest of life is, you know, lived according to our striving and performance. No, grace initiates the Christian life and continues to define our relationship to God even after conversion. So God comes to us. In Christ, to save us and do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Salvation is a gift of God. Salvation is a gift of God, secondly, through the king that he lifts up. So, 68, God has come to save his people. How has he come to save his people? Verse 69, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. There are two ways of describing the coming of the Son of God. There's a vertical way to describe it. The eternal Son of God becomes man. He becomes one of us. Uh, God takes on human nature and comes to save us. We might say that's the vertical dimension of the incarnation, the coming of the Son to us. But there's a horizontal dimension. The coming of Jesus is not a random historical fact. It just happens. It happens, instead, in the stream of Israel's history. Jesus Christ is, according to his human nature, a descendant of Israel's greatest king, King David. As I've noted already, Israel has for centuries been waiting for the arrival of the Messiah. David's greater son who would bring salvation to God's people. And Zechariah is saying, and all of Luke 1 says, that Jesus is that Messiah. He is the descendant of David. Come to Israel, come to the world to bring God's salvation. The whole Old Testament story has been anticipating the, this moment. And here we see the climax and the, fruit, the full flowering of God's promise in the coming of Jesus. God promises Abraham, the father of the nation of Israel, that his descendant will bring blessing to the whole earth. The whole world will be full of joy and celebration because of his offspring. Genesis 22, 18. And your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And then we learn, after Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has Judah, that this blessing will come through a king. Judah is a lion's cub. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And then about a thousand years later, we get to David, Israel's second king. And David, unlike Saul, Israel's first king, is a king after God's own heart. And God makes David a solemn promise. 2 Samuel seven sixteen, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So there will come one from the line of David who will reign forever and ever. The promise gets more specific. We go from Judah to David. Then we get to Isaiah, something, something like 250 years later. Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 say, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. And intriguingly, when the king comes, who comes? And Isaiah. Mighty God. So when the Messiah comes, it's not simply a human being who comes. God himself in the Messiah comes to visit his people Israel. Ezekiel 34, 23. I will set over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. God has been telling his people for centuries that a descendant of David is going to come on the scene and he is going to bring the blessings of God, the blessings of Abraham to Israel into the world. And the whole world will rejoice because of his coming. And Zechariah is saying that that moment has come. The king that Israel has been waiting for and the world has been waiting for has come on the scene to bring us the salvation of God. And notice what verse 69 affirms about this king. He has raised up a horn of salvation. The picture here is of, of an ox with a horn that uses its horn to thrust against its enemies. It's an image of strength and power. The Messiah, Jesus, is not an impotent king who wants to do good to his people, but can't. The king is mighty to save. He is powerful. He is strong, able to vanquish the enemies of his people and bring them from the darkness of sin and death and judgment into the light of God's presence. That's who the king is, powerful, mighty to save. Get a picture of this in the Old Testament when David even before he is formally recognized as king, stands between cowering Israel and the giant Goliath. Uh, The men of Israel, the warriors of Israel, are frightened by their Philistine foes, and particularly the Philistine champion Goliath, who taunts them again and again. They're terrified by this man. But what does the king do? He stands between his cowering people and their foe. And at the Risk of his life, he defeats their enemy, and he brings them victory. Isn't it interesting? When we read the David story, we tend to put ourselves in David's position. We're the ones fighting Goliath. A better reading of that story is that we're among the, you know, you know, the people hiding behind the rocks, waiting to see how it will happen. Uh, and the king's victory then becomes our victory. Because he is strong and goes on ahead of us to fight for us, We get to share in his victory, but he is the one who finally obtains the victory. And so it is with Jesus. He goes before us to face sin and death and judgment and Satan, and he defeats them all for us so that through his victory, we come to have victory. So we see that this king is powerful. You can trust in this king, you can rely on him to save you. And not, again, just at conversion. But for the rest of your life, you are called to rest in the king's power, to trust in his protection, to look to his strength, to help you uh, to endure in the face of opposition, uh, to continue to obey when life is difficult. The Christian life is one of continuously drawing on the strength of Jesus Christ, to be the parents that we're called to be, uh, to be the neighbors we're called to be, to love the way we're called to love, to serve the way that we're called to serve not just that we believe and enjoy the King's strength and then leave it behind. No, for the rest of our lives, we look to Jesus to protect us and to provide the strength that we need to live a life that's glorifying to God. I recently spoke to a, to a friend who's been a, a believer a relatively long time, a little older than I am, and I asked him just a very general question. As you, I said to him, as you've walked with the Lord all of these years, is it your impression that as you grow, Closer to Jesus, you become stronger or weaker. I didn't qualify it, didn't add any further explanation. I just, do you become stronger or weaker? I thought about it. I like, weaker. Uh, you, I, I, you, you come to have less and less confidence in yourself and find yourself trusting more and more in Jesus. That certainly squares with my experience. I certainly think it squares with the teaching of Scripture. Uh, Part of the way that we get stronger, paradoxically, as Christians, is we become weaker. Uh, God takes away all the things that we trust in instead of Jesus, and we learn more and more to despair of ourselves and trust in the resources that are ours in Jesus Christ. It's the same pattern that was evident in the life of Jacob. Uh, Jacob, if you know the book of Genesis and a little bit about the Old Testament, was a strong individual. I mean, literally, physically strong. There's a scene where he can pick up a stone that it takes several men to be able to pick up. And he does it by himself. He's physically strong. He's cunning. He's a schemer. He knows how to take care of himself. But Jacob can't become the patriarch, the father of Israel. His name is actually changed from Jacob to Israel. He can't become Israel until his strength is broken. What's the moment in Jacob's life where he becomes Israel? When, when his hip is out of joint and he is in anguish and he is pleading to God for mercy. That's the moment at which Jacob becomes Israel. That's when he becomes the patriarch, when he learns how to lean not on his own cunning and strength, but in the strength of God. And that's the same trajectory for us. We have a king who is powerful, but we are not. But that's okay. It doesn't mean we're weak because our strength is in the king and we draw on that strength continuously. We don't have what we need to face the challenges of life, but Jesus does. And just as we trust in Him for salvation and the forgiveness of our sins, we continue to trust in Him for everything that we need. So God comes to save His people. He saves them through the King, through the Messiah, through Jesus Christ. And He saves them in accordance with His ancient promises, as He spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets from of old. The coming of Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that God has made to his people centuries and even millennia before. Zechariah goes on to talk about his covenant with Abraham, something like 2,500 years, 2,000 years before Jesus came on the scene, Abraham lived and God made promises to Abraham. And the coming of Jesus is the full flowering of all of these promises that we have in the Old Testament, promises to Abraham, to David, through uh, prophets like Isaiah. So what do we learn from that? Well, simply this, God always keeps his promises. The fulfillment of his promises may seem slow by human standards, but God will inescapably and inevitably and always bring to pass what he says he will bring to pass. It is absolutely certain. I like the way Thomas Watson, another Puritan, puts it. Speaking here of the resurrection, the body shall rise again. We are not so sure to rise out of our beds as we are to rise out of our graves. It's not a question of whether God will fulfill his promises, only when. Now, this is of a tremendous practical significance. We understand that human beings can be sincere when they make a promise, well-intentioned. I will come over on Wednesday and help you move. But there are all kinds of circumstances outside of my control that could prevent me as a human being from keeping that promise, even if I'm sincere. Car accidents, you know, sickness. But there is nothing in the universe that can keep God from keeping his promise. And the practical significance is that when God tells us that our king is coming back, it's not a question of whether, it's only when. In a sense, we're unlike Zechariah Zach- and Israel at this point. We live on the other side of the coming of Jesus. We have seen the Messiah. He has come, he has died. He rose again. He is now reigning in power. So we have seen God's salvation. We have seen how the King has come to purchase our redemption. Uh, And so we see the fulfillment of God's plan. So in that sense, things are different for us this side of the coming of Jesus. On the other hand, our salvation isn't yet complete, is it? There's still one last thing that needs to happen. And what's that thing? Jesus has to come back. And so in that sense, we are a bit like Israel waiting for the Messiah. We are waiting for the King to return. And sometimes it can feel like th- there's an air of unreality about the second coming. Life goes on as it's always gone on. One day is like the next. Seasons come and seasons go. One year is like another, and it can, there's a certain sameness to life. But what Zechariah is suggesting is that even though the promises of God might be fulfilled slowly, judged by human standards, they will certainly be fulfilled. And so one day, as was true for Zechariah, we will go from waiting to rejoicing in the fulfillment of his word. The certainty of God's promise is an encouragement to us to keep patiently waiting and keeping our eyes on the coming of the King, on the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. God keeps his word. Now, what are we saved from? We've said God saves us, saves us through his king, saves us in accordance with his word. What does he save us from? I've hinted at this already, but this passage underscores the fact that God saves us from sin and from our enemies. The imagery is very vivid, isn't it, at the end of this song? It speaks of our living in darkness and guilt and separation from God, anguish, but the light of God shines upon us. It's a way of capturing our redemption from sin. The mission of John the Baptist is to declare uh, salvation from sin, the pardon of sin. And we've we noted already that sin is disobedience to God. A refusal to submit to him as our Lord, and an insistence upon our being our own Lord. And this is a great evil, not least because God made us and we owe him everything. Nothing that we have, including existence, comes from ourselves. It comes from the Creator. And because all that we are and all that we have comes from God, we owe Him our worship and our obedience. And to stubbornly refuse to yield our lives to Him and yield obedience to Him is a great evil in His sight. But Jesus comes into the world to take away our sins, to take away our guilt. He lives the life of perfect submission to God that we ought to have lived. And he freely offers his life in our place, taking upon himself the judgment that we deserve, that we might be reconciled to God. Through the obedience, through the suffering, through the anguish and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we come to experience the forgiveness of our sins. Are you amazed by that? That God knows the absolute worst about you, and he pardons all of it. There is no sin that can't be finally covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. Whatever horrors and nightmares we've experienced or inflicted on others, whatever sins we've committed, all of them can be pardoned through Jesus Christ. When we recognize that our sins have been forgiven, the response should be one of gratitude and praise and joy. Dale Ralph Davis captures this well. He writes, there are those of us, and not especially emotional types, who find forgiveness makes us border on ecstasy. In our current church, we use the Apostles' Creed every Lord's Day morning. I know there are perhaps more important, substantial, and doctrinal parts of the creed, but I can't help it. My favorite article in the creed is, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. I know it's way down there, it's next to the next to last phrase, but somehow if decorum permitted and wouldn't throw others off their cadence, I'd be willing to shout that line. Maybe I'm too obsessed with my own condition, but it is the very gift that Israel and I most need. Do you realize that that's the one thing you most deeply need today? Not a better marriage, as important as that is. Not more satisfying work. The one thing you'd most deeply need this morning is the forgiveness of God through His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what Jesus freely purchases for us. A response, if we are not experiencing that forgiveness, if we are not today trusting in Jesus, our response should be to trust in the Lord Jesus and find that forgiveness. And if you are trusting in Jesus and your sins are forgiven, then Zechariah is the model for you. Praise and thanksgiving is right. So we're saved through Jesus from our sin, but also, Zechariah notes, from our enemies. The king has come, verse 71, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. Uh, Verse 74, being delivered from the hand of our enemies. Now, who are these enemies? At one level, it would not be wrong to say that it is all those who oppose Jesus and his people, and the time is coming when Jesus will free us from every sort of enemy when he returns. 2 Thessalonians 1 makes this very clear. But if we just look at Luke's gospel, we consider it as a whole, and we pose the question, what enemies does Jesus especially contend with during his ministry? What's the answer? Especially demonic powers, say Satan, those fallen angels who oppose God and oppose his people are especially the enemies in view. We live in a very rationalistic age, somewhat less so than 20 years ago maybe maybe a little less rational, Um, never mind, Uh, we're still, (laughs) it's a different train of thought that I'll promptly dismiss, Uh, there is a tendency to say that only what we can see with our senses is real, only that which can be observed by the senses is real, and anything that we can't observe is nonsense and folly, Uh, well, there's a kind of arrogance in this, it's the first thing to know. And Scripture says that there is a great deal more to the world than what we can observe with our senses. There are evil spirits working to oppose the saving plan of God and working to oppose the church. And although it's not often recognized, part of our misery as human beings is not only that we are guilty before God because of our sins, but we are also entangled in this net of demonic influence and oppression apart from Jesus Christ. We are captives both to sin and Satan apart from Jesus. And we need to be liberated not simply from the guilt of our sins, but from the dominion and power of the evil one. It's a theme in Scripture. And with forgiveness of sins comes freedom from demonic powers so that we can live a new and holy life. So these things are brought together here by Zechariah. We are freed from our enemies along with the guilt of our sin. With the result that we are saved to walk in obedience, verse 74, being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So what is the purpose of salvation? It's not simply to be saved from something, guilt of sin and demonic oppression, but we're also saved to something. And what is that something that we're saved to? That we might serve him, verse 74, without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. We are saved that we might put God at the center of our lives and live lives that are honoring to him and characterized by obedience. Sometimes we have half the good news, the first half. The good news is that Jesus has come and we can be forgiven and reconciled to God. Praise God, that's all wonderfully true, as we've seen. But there's another side of the coin. We're not just forgiven of our sins. The power of our enemies, the dominion of sin has been broken such that a life that is genuinely pleasing to Jesus Christ is an obtainable thing for all of his people. This is not like an unobtainable ideal for super saints. All of God's people, because of the work of Jesus, can live lives that are genuinely pleasing to God and honoring to God and characterized by a fundamental obedience. Yes, we sin, we fall short, and receive God's forgiveness, but we should expect that as we walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, we will experience increasing obedience to His will. If you don't understand that part of it, then we will be complacent about sin. Oh, praise God, my sins are forgiven. When I fall, and I inevitably will fall, I just ask Jesus to forgive me, and praise God, that's, that, that's right, that's true. But there's more to it. Jesus didn't just die so we could be forgiven. Jesus died and rose again so we could have new life. That should encourage us to keep pursuing holiness. Yes, we may fail. It's a struggle. It doesn't happen overnight. All of those things are true. But Jesus purchased a life of obedience for us, and so we should press on in confidence that as we continue to seek Him, we will experience increasing obedience to His will. So obedience is not just something we ought to give to God. It's something we get to give to God. It's a privilege. It it is a joy for God's people to live lives that are centered on Him. If you have only half a gospel, you know, Jesus died so I can be forgiven, What that will tend to produce is is a view that I'm free to live my life for whatever aims and agendas I have for myself, and God is on the sidelines supporting me. I'm in the driver's seat, and God's going to help me fulfill my agenda. But when you understand that you've not just been forgiven of your sins, but you've been called to live a life of obedience with Jesus at the center, what that will increasingly produce is a sense that how, how can I order my family and my work and indeed all of life in such a way that his will is increasingly accomplished. It puts him at the center. So amazingly, Zechariah is saying, Jesus has come to rescue us from judgment and sin and empower us to lead a new and holy life. Do you delight in holiness? Do you delight in obedience? Do you see not simply that it's necessary, but that it's lovely? It's a sign of spiritual life. As we conclude and we take a step back from this expression of delight in God's salvation, we need to underscore yet again that Zechariah's song is not fundamentally a call to try harder and do better. Zechariah's prophecy is a declaration that God has done for us through his son Jesus everything that we need to have peace in this life and in the life to come. The response this morning, the response this morning should be to look at what God has done and to trust in the King that He has sent. Again, let me, let me implore those of you who are with us who don't trust in Jesus as your Savior today. This good news is for you. God Himself is addressing you this morning. And He is saying, I have a gift. Better than any gift you're going to get this Christmas, I have a gift for you and it's my son Jesus. And nothing is asked of you except simply to recognize that He has done everything you couldn't do for yourself. Trust in Him as your Savior. Those of you who are trusting in Jesus as your Savior, as I've already said, stop, see the salvation of God, and rejoice in it. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, open our eyes to the wonders of your grace. Whatever else brings us joy this holiday season, grant it to be your salvation, Lord. Uh, We thank you for your self-disclosure. We thank you for your word, and we pray that it would pierce our hearts and renew us after your image. Amen.